Well, good morning, church. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Cameron. I'm the Young Adults Pastor here at Canterbury Gardens Community Church. And just, it's once again a privilege to be able to be sharing with you all this morning. Uh, now, if you haven't uh, been with us for a few weeks, you won't know that we've actually just begun a new series in the book of Ezra. Now, this book may be just as unfamiliar to you as was Lamentations, but I hope for those of you who have been joining in that you've begun to see um, some really interesting and helpful uh, things in this book. Uh, just to quickly rehash for everyone with where we're up to so far, we actually need to first go back to the book of Lamentations and remember the setting of that book, that, that the nation of Israel had been taken captive by the Babylonians. The Babylonian army had come in, they destroyed Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple, they'd taken away their treasures and brought down their walls and then taken captive the people of Israel and exiled them into a foreign land. And this, of course, we saw in Lamentations was devastating for the nation of Israel. They lost their identity, they lost their their city, they lost so much uh, to them, and it all looked pretty hopeless, except for the fact that God had promised them that after 70 years in exile, he would bring them back, that he would bring them back to their land to rebuild. And that's essentially what the book of Ezra is all about. It accounts the story of Israel rebuilding from the ashes, rebuilding what was lost. And we've seen so far in chapter 1 and 2 of Ezra, the sovereign hand of God stirring the hearts of his people and stirring the hearts of the rulers of the land, the pagan rulers, and setting them to go back to Jerusalem, paving the way for them to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild. And so we saw that that was completely by God's hand and God's own stirring of the people. In chapter 2, we saw that it was a variety of people coming together for one purpose. And, and then in chapter 3, Andy took us through that last week. We saw that everything got off to a really great start. They had their priorities right, as Andy mentioned to us, that they set uh, worship as the first thing that they wanted to do. They built the altar first and foremost. And then after that, they laid the foundation of the temple. And we saw chapter 3 finish on, on a high, despite the fact that there was some... Um, despair over the temple not looking quite as good as the previous one, there was still a cause for celebration. God's work was being done. God's work had gotten off to a good start and God's people were encouraged. And now we reach chapter 4. And just when things are going so smoothly, just when things have got off to such a good start, we're going to see that opposition arrives on the scene. Opposition and persecution comes against God's work and against God's people. And really what we're going to see today is we're going to learn about the nature of opposition against the people of God. There's going to be three things from this passage that I want us to see about the nature of opposition and persecution against us. But ultimately what we're going to see is that God's people doing God's work, will be persecuted. And so why don't we read through today's passage, Ezra chapter 4. I've organised, I'm not going to read through it myself, I've organised Tiani to read through this chapter for us. 
Um, and so make sure, as I always say, make sure you've got your Bibles before you. Uh, it's not going to be on the screen today, so make sure the text is in front of you. We'll go through the story uh, quite carefully. Uh, and so please follow along. Ezra chapter 4, starting from verse 1. Before Tiani reads that out, I'm going to pray for us and invite you to pray for yourselves and to pray for me. Heavenly Father, we just thank you once again, uh, as we do each week, to have this opportunity to come before your word and to hear what you have to say. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will be revealing to our hearts um, yeah, what we need to change, Lord, revealing in our hearts even some of the lies that we've believed. I pray, Lord, that you will ultimately uh, teach us in this time and help us to see that even... Um, in the opposition that we may face, that you are still at work. And so, Father, we just thank you for this time, and we commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Tiani is going to read that passage for us. Good morning, church. Today I'll be reading from Ezra chapter 4. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Asaradan, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counsellors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam, and Mithridath, and Tabil, and the rest of their associates, wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Reham the commander and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Reham the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapa deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. To Artaxerxes the king, Your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now, be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding the rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonour, Therefore, we send and inform the king in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. 
That was why this city was laid waste. We made known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. The king sent an answer to Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria, and in the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me, and I made a decree and search has been made, and it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition has been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God, that is, in Jerusalem, stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Hey, uh, thanks, Siani, for reading that out. I know there were plenty of challenging names and things thrown in there, so thanks for reading that out for us. So what we saw at the beginning of this passage was that it starts out with a request. It says that the adversaries of Benjamin and Judah came to Zerubbabel, Again, I don't know how to say his name either. Zerubbabel, and they essentially say to him in verse 2, Let us build with you, for, for we have been sacrificing to your God since the king of Assyria brought us here. And, and so, you know, we get this, what seems like a, a genuine request to help build the temple from people who say that they worship the same God as those returned exiles. And so it seems like a, a good request, but then in, in verse 3, they shut it down pretty um, clearly. In verse 3, they essentially just say, no, you have no share in building this temple, this house to our God. We're going to do it alone. We're going to do it alone. And, and you think to yourself, what, you know, why did they shut down this help? Wouldn't it have been helpful to have a little extra hands to, to, to contribute to the work? And while we might think that at face value, we need to actually learn a bit more about who were these people asking to help. And we actually get a key to that in verse 2. Look once again at verse 2 with me. They said to Zerubbabel, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esharadon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Yeah, so you see that end bit is really key, that they've been sacrificing to God ever since the king of Assyria brought them to the land. And so they haven't been worshippers of Yahweh all along. In fact, they just started to worship God when they were brought into the land by the king of Assyria. And now this would have rang alarm bells for the people of Israel. And we actually learn even more about this group of people in the book of Kings. 
So if you've got Bibles with you, please turn to 2 Kings chapter 17. And we're going to really learn the context behind this group of people who were asking for help. So 2 Kings chapter 17, and we're going to read from verse 24. And this is just after the Israelites have been exiled. We read this, 2 Kings chapter 17 verse 24 says this, And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kuthar, Avar, Hamath, and Sepharavim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So the king of Assyria was told, The nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them, and behold, they are killing them because they do not know the law of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, Send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there, and let let him go and dwell there and teach them the law of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. But every nation still made gods of his own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities in which they lived. And then we go down to verse 33, which says this, So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. To this day, they do according to the former manner. They do not fear the Lord, and they do not follow the statutes or the rules or the law of the commandment that the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. And so we see here that these people were actually those who were mixed Jews. They were, some of them were Jews, some of them were people from the land, and they actually went in, the, the king of Assyria actually brought them back into the land, and they didn't know anything about the Lord God, and so they were taught by one of the priests, but we see clearly in these verses, they didn't really worship God. They just added him into the rest of the idols that they worshipped. It was just one of the many, and then we learn in that final verse that really, eventually, What happens when we always worship more than one God? They ended up abandoning the Lord God altogether and worshipping their idols alone. And this group of people is actually the ones who we get the Samaritans from in the New Testament, kind of a a mixed Jewish race of of Jews and non-Jews. And so this is the group of people coming to ask for help in Ezra chapter 4, a group of people who said that they worshipped Yahweh, but really they didn't. They worshipped idols. And so we can see why they would say no to this request. So if you turn back to Ezra chapter 4, we see that they reject this offer of help. And then immediately after, the true colours of these people come to the forefront, right? In verse 4 and 5, they begin to discourage and to attempt to stop the work that the Jews were doing in building, rebuilding the temple. And so persecution comes, and we see that in verse 5. They, re, they bribe counsellors and they threaten them with violence in order to make them afraid from rebuilding. So persecution has come. Persecution has come against God's work and against God's people. And this really brings us 
to our first point. <clears throat> that persecution will always come against those who are doing the work of God. And this is always the way it has been. Where God is at work, persecution and difficulty arises. This is the story of the Bible. This is the story of Israel. Whenever they... When they came into the land and they were doing God's work, opposition and persecution arose against them. It's always been the way. When God is working, opposition and persecution will come. Why? We ultimately know why, because there is a spiritual battle going on. And the evil one at all costs wants to frustrate the purposes of God. And the same is true for us today. We know this as Christians, right? 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 12 says this, Indeed, all, all of us who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's one of those facts about following God that we kind of just wish wasn't true. But the reality is, all of us who are doing God's work, who are God's people, will be persecuted and will face opposition. That's the first truth we see clearly in this passage. And you know what? It may not look exactly like the opposite opposition here in Ezra, but the outcome, the goal, will be similar to make us afraid and discouraged and ultimately to stop us living and working for God. For us, it might actually just look like the spiritual attack or even the opposite opposition of our own flesh. Opposition will come against the people of God who are doing God's work. So that's what we firstly learn here in this passage. But also notice in these first few verses of Ezra chapter 4, where exactly this persecution is coming from. It's coming from those who claim to follow the same God as the Israelites. And this is actually another wider theme of the, of the Bible. You know, we often think that the world is the one who's always going to bring persecution against us. Those who don't believe in God, they're going to be the ones who taunt us most. But the reality is, in the Bible, oftentimes it's those who say they worship the same God as us that bring the persecution, just like here in Ezra chapter 4. And it's the same in the New Testament, right? Who brings the most persecution in the New Testament church? We see it's the Pharisees, and then it's the, the circumcision party who say they worship God, but ultimately they worship idols. And so we see here that, yes, persecution will come, and, and often it comes from those within. And we need to be on guard. We need to be on guard from those who say that they worship God, who say that they believe in Jesus Christ, but are ultimately only causing destruction and bringing in false teaching in order to lead us astray. We must be on guard against that. So the first thing we learn from this passage Persecution and opposition will come to all of us who are doing God's work, who are God's people. But there's more to see in this passage about opposition and persecution. So let's keep looking, looking at verse 6. Verse 6 says this, And in the reign of Asurasus, I have no idea how to say that, but I'll just skip over it. In the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. Now, this is where our passage actually gets a little bit confusing because 
you think verse 5 and then verse 6 just follow straight on from one another, that they're in the same timeline. But the odd part about this chapter is between verse 5 and verse 6, there's about 50 years difference in time. It's about 50 years later. So verses 1 to 5 are following on from the timeline that we've been used to in Ezra, where they're rebuilding the temple. But then verses 6 to 23 of this chapter, they're going to account for us another story of opposition and persecution. About 50 years later, when the walls are being rebuilt and when the city is being rebuilt. And then the final chapter, verse 24 of this chapter, is going to go back to the original time of verses 1 to 5. A little bit confusing, but essentially it's just accounting for us two different stories of persecution. One from the current timeline and one from 50 years later. And ultimately there is a purpose to what the author is trying to do here. He's trying to make, make another point about the opposition and persecution that God's people were facing. That this wasn't some light and momentary thing, but it was persistent and it lasted a long time. And so what we see here in these verses from 6 to 23, we're not going to read through them all again, but follow the story along with me, is that we see this same group of people who started the trouble in verses 1 to 5 have stirred up trouble and gotten uh, the officials to write a letter to King Artaxerxes, basically telling him that if the Jews finish building this city, if the walls get finished, the temple is finished, and, and, the, and the other city buildings are completed, then they're going to rise up in rebellion. They're not going to pay their taxes. They're going to basically cause trouble. So they write that in a letter to King Artaxerxes, and then we see his reply in verse 17. And sure enough, he, he checks the records, and he sees that over Israel's history, there has been much uh, there's, that they were once a great nation, that they had great kings who, who caused a lot of trouble in the area. And so after seeing this, he orders that God's work, the work of the people of Israel, would cease, that it would be stopped. And so really all this amounts, this brings us to our second point, that, that not only is persecution a certainty, not only is opposition a certainty for the people of God, but it's also, it also can be persistent and last for a long time. You see, the, the initial persecution in verses 1 to 5 actually lasted for 14 years. It was 14 years before they could do anything more on God's temple. And we see that in verse 24, where it says it, it lasted all the way up to the second year of King Darius. And then we have this persecution in 6 to 23, 50 years later, that we didn't even know how long that lasted. But it was a, another series of opposition to what was going on. Not only is God persecution and opposition a certainty, but it also is persistent and can last a long time. And this, of course, is one of the challenges for us as Christians. If you're anything like me, even in your own life, you might wonder, when will the opposition stop? Because we know as Christians, our opposition doesn't just come from the world and from people around us. But it comes from the spiritual battle that we're in, the battle with our own flesh and ultimately the accusations of the evil one and the spiritual battle going on around us. And these battles can be persistent and long. 
but be encouraged from this passage that once again this is a common struggle for the people of God. Opposition to the work of God is not only a certainty but it can be persistent and can last for a long time. And so so far this passage has given us a picture of what can come against God's people in two separate stories from 1 to 5 and now from 6 to 23. To finish with we're going to look at the final verse of this chapter verse 24 and as I said before it reverts back to the original timeline of verse 1 to 5. So let's read that together verse 24 says this in summary. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So this final verse brings us to our final point. Not only is persecution and opposition a certainty, not only is it often persistent and can last for a long time, but it also can appear to stop the work of God. And we see that clearly in this verse, right? That the work on the house of God in Jerusalem is ceased. It stops for almost 14 years. No work is done. So for 14 years, everything just stops. You know, this must have been really discouraging for the people of Israel who had got off to such a good start. But once again, these passages are in the Bible to show us the nature of a life following God. And I think this is sometimes the way it can appear for us, that there are times when our ministries and our our church and, and the work that we are doing appears to have ceased, that the opposition to it is great. And, and perhaps we are in one of those seasons now where things appear to have ceased. But I think we can also feel this way about our own lives, can't we? That God isn't working in the way that we hoped. That the Christian life has been far more discouraging than perhaps we thought. And perhaps the spiritual attack and the hostility from the world and some of the sacrifices you've had to make, make it feel like that God's work has ceased. Well, be encouraged. Because this passage makes it clear that sometimes this can be the way it feels to be God's people. This can be the way it looks. It's not always flourishing and thriving. Sometimes it's difficult and appears to have stopped. And so this is what this passage seeks to show us, church. It confronts the reality that opposition will come to the people of God. It might be persistent persistent and last for a long time. And it may even appear to have stopped the work of God altogether. And so I guess as we get to the end of this passage, you're kind of thinking, well, where's the encouragement? What's the encouragement from a passage like this? It's basically just saying persecution's coming and persecution is a part of the Christian life. Well, I have three things that I think are really helpful to remember from this passage. The first one is to be encouraged that this chapter embraces the reality of the normal walk with God. It doesn't avoid the fact that things can be difficult, that we are in a spiritual battle, a war with the evil one, the world and the flesh. 
It shows us clearly that persecution, hardship and opposition are a reality. And so we should be in part encouraged just by that. Because if you're in that position or feeling like we're in that position as a church, it does not mean that God has abandoned us. It can actually mean that we're doing the right thing. We're engaged in God's word and therefore opposition is there. God's work will always bring opposition. So we can take courage from the fact that this chapter doesn't shy away from that. And so if we're feeling that, it's okay. But secondly, and this one's really big. I I found this so encouraged as I reflected upon this this week. Secondly, it shows us that persecution is allowed by a sovereign God. You see, the God of Ezra chapter 1 to 3, when we saw him stirring the hearts of pagan kings, stirring the hearts of his people and beginning this work. Ultimately, it was his work, right? The people of Israel didn't get together and think this was a good idea. God stirred their hearts and he sovereignly led this work to new and exciting things to rebuild the temple. But that God of Ezra chapters 1 to 3 is the same God as Ezra chapter 4 who allows this work to cease through opposition and persecution. And I think we're supposed to see that in this passage. And I think for us, and I know for myself, we can easily get too concerned, too anxious, too fearful about the increasingly difficult circumstances that we might live in, even in our own country. The persecution that appears to be increasing, the opposition that seems to be increasing, even the own battles that we face uh, in the spiritual realm. And we can often get too fearful and too worried about these things and forget that the same sovereign God who has been working in our hearts is still working. The same sovereign God who who rules over all of history still rules today. Maybe we need to rethink how we're looking at our world. Maybe we need to remember and remind ourselves that God is still on the throne. He hasn't lost a grip on our circumstances. Just like in Ezra chapter 4, he hasn't lost a grip on things. He didn't just get it started in Ezra chapters 1 to 3 and then lose control of it in Ezra chapter 4. Opposition and persecution are a normal part of the Christian life, but they are under the sovereign hand of our God, and that should bring us great hope. And thirdly, and finally, there's an encouragement to see that this was not the end of the story. That chapter 4 is not the end of the story. That yes, discouragement came, fear came, hardship came, but it was only part of the story. The work of rebuilding will continue in chapter 5. And so God's work may appear to have ceased, but God is still at work and he will bring it about and bring about completion of that work. And so if you're in the midst of a season right now, whether you individually, your ministry or, or just us as a church, if we're in that season, we need to remember that God is still at work and this is not the end of the story. Persecution is in the nature of the Christian life. Hardship and opposition is the way of the Christian life. But we need to understand that ultimately this is not only because we live in a broken world, but also that because we serve a suffering and persecuted Saviour. 
Because you see, this moment in Ezra chapter 4, where God's work appears to have ceased, was nothing compared to the moment when God himself, in Jesus Christ, was persecuted and opposed and hung on a cross and died and was buried. If you pause for a moment and think about what that would have looked like, if there was ever a moment in history where it looked like God's work had been stopped, it was when God himself was in the grave. And so for some of us, some of our Christian lives, we live them in that space. We live them in the light of the death of Jesus and we face similar hardship. We face persecution because he did. But then wait a few days and we realize that rather than stopping his work, it was in Jesus' death and burial that gave birth to life and hope for God's people. The burial and death wasn't the full story. The resurrection, it brought forth the resurrection which changed everything. And so yes, persecution and opposition is the way of God's people doing God's work. It can be persistent, it can last for a long time, it can even appear to have stopped the work of God. But be encouraged that this is part of the Christian life because we follow a persecuted and suffering Saviour who went to the cross and has won the victory through his death and through his resurrection. But also be encouraged that we serve a God who is sovereignly in control, even in our hardship, even in our difficulties, even in the persecution, and who promises that he'll use all these things for our good. I want to finish by reading some verses from 2 Corinthians that I think are really appropriate um, to this passage and to our own lives. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 to 12. It's really going to help us to see the paradoxical nature of this Christian life. Listen to these words from 2 Corinthians. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for this passage that is really honest about the opposition that we face as your people. It's always been the story of your people, and it will always be uh, until you return. But Lord, we thank you for the hope that we can have. Um, that the, First of all, the Bible is just honest about these things, that we know it is a normal part of the Christian life to, to face opposition and persecuted, persecution. In fact, you promise that we all will face it. Lord, but we also thank you that, um, just like in Ezra chapter 4, that there is a, you are sovereign, Lord. You are ruling over us, that the God, who, the, the God who started the work will bring it to completion. Lord, we ultimately thank you most that we, we serve a God who entered into that persecution, who suffered himself on our behalf, 
And ultimately, Lord, that's why we walk in these things. And as we read there in 2 Corinthians, we, we, are, we do experience suffering. We do experience opposition. We do experience part of the death of Jesus, but we also experience the life of Jesus through the spirit that you have given us. And so, Lord, I thank you for Ezra chapter 4. I pray that we'll take heart from this in our own lives and us as a church as we recognize, Lord, that in the midst of the opposition, you are still at work. And you'll finish the work that you started. And so, Lord, help us as we begin this next week to look to you, to remember that you are in control, that you are with us and that you are working. We thank you for this time and pray these things now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks, church.